to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assisted in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. And I'm joined by my co-host and co-author, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. Today, we are joined by a really special guest, William P. Sullivan. He's a practicing attorney and an emergency medicine physician, and he's joining us to discuss the legal implications of scope of practice for non-physician practitioners. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. (laughs) Well, we're so happy to have you. I hope that you could just start us out by just sharing with our audience a little bit about your background and how did you decide to become both a physician and an attorney? Uh, It was a dare. I'm not kidding. Well, it's kind of a challenge, more or less. So I started out in uh, in emergency medicine, I did dual residency in emergency medicine, internal resident medicine, and then my senior year, I was uh, in the ICU and I was complaining about how HMOs were ruining the practice of medicine. And one of the students dared me to uh, do something about it, and I said, "Okay, fine." So I went and I took the um, exam. The next month after I was on call, so I took it in the like during the day, and I was on call the night before, and I did good enough to get into law school. And then by the time I graduated, HMOs weren't really that big anymore, so they kind of took care of the, the problem on their own. So you're actually practicing both at the same time. How are you managing that? Well, so for, I'm I'm fortunate enough to uh, work at a uh, kind of a lower volume emergency department where I do 24 hour shifts. Unfortunately, lately the volumes haven't been quite so low. But then I do I do six twenty four hour shifts a month, and that leaves me um, extra time during the month to do legal stuff and to write articles and stuff like that. So it works out. I used to work in a law firm in the in the Chicago Loop, but that ended up being too time intensive. So I just uh, started my own practice, and that way I can kind of work my own hours. That's awesome. You mentioned your writing, and that's actually how we found out about you. We saw the article that you wrote talking about scope of practice uh, and the legal implications. Uh, I really just wanted to start getting into that. First of all, what got you interested in non-physician practitioner scope? It was actually an issue that a client came up with. And when I get questions like that, I figure if one client asks about it, there's probably other people that are asking the th- same thing. And so I, uh, I try to put something out there. I know when I first started, I had a lot of questions about medicine and law that I couldn't really find answers to. And I don't know that I'm the definitive opinion on stuff, but at least I want to try to throw my opinion out there and give people an idea of what things to consider when they're trying to, to make a decision on a topic that um, I write about. So uh, I try to do it not just with with independent practitioners, but I do it with contracts. I do it with um, lawsuits. So I just I try to throw information out there to help the docs and even to help lawyers that that may have a question about an issue just get a different perspective. Well, let's just dive into talking about what your stance is, and you have a, a kind of a unique point of view in which you believe that nurse practitioners and physician assistants should basically practice independently or without supervision and be held to the same standards. Can you elaborate on your points of view on that? I think to to, be, to begin with, you got to get some background just to kind of figure out where we're at. So, if you look, there's a there's an organization called the National Conference. Of state legislatures, it's uh, if you go to the website, it's scopeofpracticepolicy.org, and they kind of give a breakdown of the current scope of practice for NPs and PAs. And about 25 states allow um, some degree of independent practice. 
There aren't any states. There's actually, I take that back. North Dakota just became the first state, I think it was in 2019, to incorporate this concept of optimal team practice for PAs where they don't really have to be completely associated with a, a physician. When you you break things down, a, a nurse practitioner gets, they have to have a four-year bachelor's degree, and then they get about another two years of uh, book training, and then they get another four to five months of clinical training. Um, PAs get about two years of undergraduate education, another uh, 27 months of medical education, then 2,000 hours of practice, which is about another year where physicians average between, they get four years of undergrad, four years of med school, and then three to seven years of residency. So there's a lot of difference in training. And then you kind of have to look at what are the scopes of practice? The scope of practice, a lot of people think, well, it's determined by physicians or just it's determined by physician organizations. And it isn't. It's determined by state legislatures. So a state legislature and they'll have different practice acts. So you have the Medical Practice Act, the Nursing Practice Act, the PA Practice Act. And so the scope of practice contained within those different laws is determines how much or how little a, a practitioner can perform. When you look at like I'll use example of Illinois since I practice in Illinois. In Illinois, the Medical Practice Act doesn't even really define what the practice of medicine is. It's got a bunch of other definitions, but it doesn't define what's the practice of medicine. When you look at the Nurse Practice Act in Illinois, again, it, it says the scope of practice of a nurse practitioner, an advanced nurse practitioner, can include diagnosis, um, ordering tests, procedures, um, providing palliative end-of-life care, providing counseling. So those are all things that really amount to the practice of medicine. So when you talk about should advanced practitioners be able to practice medicine, to some degree, the state legislatures are already allowing them to practice medicine. And whether they want to call it that or not, they're allowing them to uh, allowing them to do so. In terms of my, uh, in my view, <laughs> you got it, you're smiling already, both of you guys are laughing. So this is going to be a tough sell, I think. Um, so the way I start looking at it is to say, you know, how's the current system working for us so far? Where, where are we at? We're already required to supervise nurse practitioners and PAs. Um, and if we're going to supervise them, why do we have to supervise them if the training's adequate? So, and that's the argument that the professional associations make is that they've got adequate training and the training is similar and their outcomes are similar to physicians. So why should we have to supervise? The status quo is right now that the employed docs aren't happy because they have to supervise which takes time away from other patients and, and care of other patients. The employed docs have to split some of their income with the uh, PAs and NPs if it's RVU-based. So they don't get to, even if they're participating in the patient's care, they don't get a lot of the income from that patient encounter. And then they have a lot of liability for any negligence that occurs with the NPs and PAs. So employed docs aren't happy. Now, docs will work out on their own maybe a little bit more accepting of it because they're making money off of it. And same with hospitals and same with groups. Um, so they may be a little bit more in tune with the status quo. Uh, the Obviously, the professional associations for the nurse practitioners and the physician assistants are not. They want full practice authority. So that's the status quo. And then you've got the medical association saying, we don't want independent practice. But you know, I, to that, I say, what's the goal? Where are we going from here? You're not going to get state legislatures to roll back the laws and say, hey, none of these guys can practice independently. So it's, I think it's, it's kind of a fool's errand to say we're going to do something where legislation is going to, to take away some of the uh, 
practice parameters that have already been granted to MPPAs. So at least with medicine, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. So you look at other practices, you look at law, you don't have paralegals going and arguing cases in front of judges. Um, you look at like aviation, you don't have pilot assistants piloting airplanes. Those professional organizations have kind of staunchly resisted any type of practice by someone who's not fully trained. So the horse is out of the barn with medicine. So now we got to say, okay, what are we going to do about it? I would like to jump in just because it's not a hard sell for me at all. I've, I've actually had to <laughs> fight about this quite a bit. And I'm in an independent state, right? Washington State was one of the first independent states. And so I'm 100% on board with your opinion because I think it's the only way we're going to go through this. I just, what is hard for me, and maybe you can talk more about this because this becomes an issue in a lot of these states, that in certain states, nurse practitioners and PAs are not held. It's very clear they are not held to the standard of a physician. And we've talked with, I think we talked with um, a few of the lawyers over the past few podcasts that talked about how hard it was to convince the judge or the standard, I don't know how this works, but to get it in to the case like, hey, the nurse practitioner was working alone in this ER. Therefore, the ER standard should apply. And right. maybe you could talk a little more about that because I 100% agree with you. If we're going to go for independent practice, horses out of the barn, then like I don't want to supervise. I actually have been very clear. I work, I have a nurse practitioner that sort of we share overhead, right? I don't really make, I mean, it's not about making money. It's about serving patients as best. We don't have enough doctors. So the whole point is, She is her own shop. I am my own shop. And I don't want to share liability. I don't want to share supervision. Sometimes we'll talk back and forth. I don't know a lot of physicians that do want to share liability. No. And and it's it's just such a mess if you have to be supervising them. And I'm, I'm really happy I get to do it this way. It's like her decisions are her decisions. My decisions are my decisions. And we're real clear with patients. You can see the nurse practitioner or the pediatrician. And that's it. That's where we sit. And people who see the nurse practitioner choose the nurse practitioner. And those that see me have chosen a physician. So again, it's really clear delineation. And I think your plan allows for that or your ideas about how to approach this. So could you talk a little more about holding the standard of care in a place for everyone? So so the standard of care is what a reasonable practitioner, and I use the term practitioner, but usually it's a reasonable physician, but it's a reasonable practitioner would do under the same or similar circumstances. So there's a lot of these, these ideas that say, you know, we're the uh, NP and PA organizations say, we're equivalent to physicians. But then when it comes to a lawsuit, everybody backs off and says, we're just a PA, sorry, or I'm just an NP. And it can't work that way. You can't have two separate standards. And there's a lot of precedent in law for this already. So I'm an emergency physician. If I all of a sudden decide I want to go and do neurosurgery and I go operate on a a patient's brain, I'm not held to the standard of an emergency physician. I'm held to the standard of a neurosurgeon. And if the hospital credentials me as a neurosurgeon, then they can be liable for doing so. That's what the law says. If you are acting like a, a specialist, you're held to the standard of that specialist. And it's just to say, if you if you look at it, uh, if I wanted to go and design, be an architect and design a bridge, I wouldn't be held to the standard of an emergency physician. I'd be held to the standard of an architect. So the law holds us to the standard of what a reasonable practitioner would do in the same or similar circumstances. Now, if a nurse practitioner or PA is independently practicing and they're seeing patients without any input from any physician, they're essentially practicing medicine. 
whether we're going to use that term practicing medicine or not, I think that it kind of muddies the point. But if they're doing everything that a physician would do, they're practicing medicine. And if they're practicing medicine, they need to be held to the same standard as a reasonable medical practitioner would be held to. So I, I, I think it's unfair to patients. I think it's unfair to physicians to say, we're going to practice just like you do. But when something inevitably goes wrong, I mean, nobody's going to practice perfect medicine, not even me. And when something happens to all of a sudden say, we're held to a lesser standard, I don't think that's fair to patients to say, you have a lot higher hurdle to get over to prove that we were negligent because we're held to a lesser standard. There, and I could give you lots of examples about precedent and law about this, but that's the basic gist. Yeah, it's really interesting to see attorneys, plaintiff's attorneys trying to make this argument and actually being successful and where we are seeing that start to happen. And it sounds like if we did take that stance of, hey, you're saying that you can do the same thing or better than a physician, because that's what we often hear, then you can take the same liability. And I guess the question is, would that then make an impact on the hiring of non-physician practitioners by hospitals and other facilities that are basically trying to save a buck? They're hiring them to do the job and their malpractice is usually a lot less than a physician malpractice, probably because they know that they're not going to pay those same claims. Right. And I think it will eventually it'll impact hospital liability and it'll impact upon the liability for the groups. Like if you look at the National Practitioner Data Bank, I just pulled up a little bit of data um, recently. So there are, for uh, nurse practitioners, the National Practitioner Data Bank, the, the National Practitioner Data Bank merged its data with a different database about 10 years ago. So there wasn't really, there didn't used to be reports on NPs and, and PAs and nurses, but uh, now that they've merged, they, they, the report, every, all the reports are combined into one database. There's about 9,000 NPs that are in the National Practitioner Data Bank, and the claims have gone up every year. Um, from 2000 to 2019, the claims were, have gone up from 165 up to, uh, what is it, 796 in those, in those 20 years. And I cut it off in 2019 because with 2020, there's a lot less claims because of COVID. 9,000 uh, 9, total, there's about 800 um, claims. For PAs, there's about 6,500 total. And the claims went up from 2019 up to 670. And they, the National Practitioner Data Bank actually divides physicians into DOs and MDs. So that's a little bit instructive too, because with DOs, there's over 19,000 DOs in, uh, that are registered in the data bank. Their claims have actually trended down over the past 20 years from 900 a year down to 779 in uh, 2019. So there are actually less claims against physicians, DOs, than there are against nurse practitioners, even though there's more than twice as many in the National Practitioner Data Bank. And again, the same thing with MDs. The number of claims, and there's 237,000 in the in the National Practitioner Data Bank. The, the claims have trended from about 18,000 down to 14,000. So the claims for physicians are trending down, but the tra- claims for both NPs and PAs are trending up. So if you're an insurer and going to provide malpractice for an independent practitioner, and you see that the claims are trending upwards, I would think that you're going to price price that into the premium, both for the independent practitioner and for the hospital or the group that wants to hire the independent practitioner. So I think that there will be an impact on insurance, and maybe it's still a few years off, but I think there's going to be an impact on insurance. How do we separate that? Because this captain of the ship 
still seems to be, you know, we're still dragging this idea around that there's always this captain of the ship and it has to be the doctor. So I guess that's my question because that does come sure, up in some but, cases. But if you're, for example, in the emergency department, if there's three, if it's a busy emergency department and there's three doctors working, there's no captain of the ship. The one doctor isn't responsible for the other doctor's actions. And I think that's the way it ought to be with all practitioners. If you're going to practice as an independent uh, practitioner, then there shouldn't be that captain of the ship doc- doctrine anymore. Um, same thing with like in surgery, if you've got a, an assistant surgeon, there's not a captain of the ship, so to speak, if an assistant surgeon does something wrong, they're responsible for their own actions. I think by saying everybody has the same practice scope and therefore you've got the same practice liability, I think it gets rid of the captain of the ship doctrine. And that's one of the things you can also press the state legislatures for is to say, hey, you know, get rid of this this whole supervision thing, but then get rid of the the uh, liability and make the liability all the same too. If you're going to uh, you're going to do one, it doesn't make sense to have one but not the other. You know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, particularly because if you listen to the professional associations for NPs and PAs, they are screaming up and down about how they do not need supervision, that they are qualified, that five decades of research shows. And what's interesting, though, is when you talk to individual NPs and PAs, they often tell you a different story that they don't want to practice independently or they want maybe someone to take the heat if something goes wrong or someone to check with or whatever. But the idea would be, okay, you're making all these claims. You've convinced the legislatures and half the states of the union. All right, go ahead, do it. Let's see what happens. So the dilemma then becomes as, you know, our organization, Physicians for Patient Protection, you know, our mantra is to to endorse physician-led care. And we haven't quite gotten to the point where we're ready to say, okay, just you know, do what you can do and let's just let the chips fall where they may, because then we worry about the patients. Because I, I guess where you would be leaning would be like, let the buyer beware. Patients are going to have to make a decision for themselves, but you worry because you know that patients are not getting always the right information and that a lot of them don't know, and they may not have a choice if they're going to a hospital that employs these people. And that's, that is a huge point. Exactly right. There was a study by the American College of Emergency Physicians that said, which of these people is a medical doctor? 50% of people of, you know, random patients said uh, someone who is, has a doctor of nursing practice, they thought that either they were a medical doctor or they weren't sure. 26% of people think an NP is a medical doctor or they're not sure. And 24% think uh, a PA is a medical doctor or not sure. So if there's going to be this independent practice, then the buyer can't beware if there's this misinformation getting thrown out there. So it's kind of interesting. The Indiana governor just signed a bill, I think in um, March, that made it illegal for a non-physician to use any physician title, like cardiologist or anesthesiologist, anything like that. So, and I think that that goes to the truth in advertising. But then the flip side is if there's an NP or PA or any other independent practitioner takes care of a patient under false pretenses and there's a bad outcome, then you get into issues of informed consent, which is just another another avenue of liability. And you may get into, into issues of fraud. If they're actively saying, I'm a doctor, then you get into issues of fraud. And the thing with fraud is, uh, if that's alleged and proven, then uh, you can have punitive damages. Then you don't have malpractice caps anymore. Then you don't have uh, in fact, in some states, there can be uh, uh, attorney's fees where the, the defendant has to pay attorney's fees if there's a, a successful suit. So there's a lot of other causes of action that can happen against a uh, an independent practitioner if 
they're not truthful with the patient. But that's kind of a cornerstone of let the buyer beware is giving them enough information to beware about. Well, and I don't know that I've seen that many situations where, I mean, most often what happens is a child dies, then someone finds out that they didn't see a medical doctor or a, a you know, a, a DO as well, which I lump those a MD and DO together. So they'll find out they didn't actually see a physician, right? And right. then what we're not seeing is we're seeing like negligent uh, credentialing claims. We're seeing just malpractice settlements and things, but we're not really seeing this a claim of fraud go forward where they'll introduce themselves as the physician or the doctor or whatever. And some of the DNPs are saying, well, I can go by doctor too. It's not fraud. I have a doctorate. And so I don't know that we're seeing a lot of that. And I guess that's yes. the conundrum. I'm thinking of the exact one of the exact cases that we discussed, which was Jeremy Wattenberger, whose little yep. girl died when a nurse practitioner failed to diagnose her with sepsis. Yep. And she did not introduce herself as a nurse practitioner. I the, he was under the impression she was a doctor. Yep. She was not wearing a name badge. So he yep. reported her, but they said, well, do you have proof she wasn't wearing a name badge? And he was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Take a picture? So he wasn't able to go any further with that. So I guess that would be my question to you, well, Dr. Sullivan. And- to add to that, they just settled actually with the cap. So I just received word this past week that they had to stick to the $250,000 cap. So the death of their daughter, you know, they, I mean, that's it. That's that's what they get. And and actually that nurse practitioner didn't carry malpractice insurance because why should she? For that cap, I mean, who's going to carry? You know, we all carry millions of dollars of insurance for that reason, in case if we make a mistake, in case if there's a bad outcome. You know, knowing that's a possibility, but in Texas, I mean, many of the practitioners don't have to carry malpractice insurance because they can just either pay it out or, you know, if the max is 200000 I mean, who's going to really worry about that? I think that once the word gets out, I, I mean, I can't imagine that, and I don't, I didn't see the case, so I don't know all the facts, but for uh, for a court to say, well, if someone, you can't prove that someone wasn't wearing a name badge, so therefore you can't uh, explore that line. I mean, that's that's really a decision for uh, a jury to say whether or not the patient or the fa- patient's family members believed that that, pa- that practitioner was a physician or an NP. And I mean, obviously, if they believed it was a physician and it was an NP that had lesser training, then they're going to have a, the ability to to file either a negligent credentialing claim, like you me- like you mentioned, um, or they they could do an informed consent claim. I mean, that would be another viable cause of action, and certainly fraud if that person actively said, "I'm a doctor." Um, or if they if they were calling the person doctor and the person didn't correct them, that would still kind of be, a, at least you could argue that that's a fraud case as well. That their failure to make a statement to correct a, uh, this misinterpretation by the patient isn't true. And the patients relied upon that when they were making decisions. You know, when I think about... You know, my worries that, you know, patients aren't going to know and, you know, that more that patients will be harmed by independently practicing practitioners who are not prepared. Then I also think of the flip side, which is if allowing independent practice expedites the process and swings that pendulum quicker, then maybe ultimately more lives are saved in the long run. So that is another way of looking at it. I agree with you. I think I think there that has to be that's a cornerstone, and then this whole idea that uh, the docs still have to be liable for supervision—you got to remove all that. But uh, as long as patients know, I mean, think about if you're if you're you have a brain tumor and you want to you need surgery for it, you're not just going to look in the yellow pages. You're going to do your research and say who's the best brain surgeon out there. And I think it's going to be the same thing with uh, with patients if they know I've got a choice and here's someone who's got 
11 or 12 years of medical education versus someone who has less medical education or someone who's a specialist who had three or four years or maybe seven years in the case of a neurosurgeon of specialty training versus an advanced practice provider who may have had no training in that specialty. The patients have to be able to make a decision based on full amount of information. That's what informed consent is all about. So I think it will push the envelope if it's embraced. And it's kind of a radical, I, I got called a radical when I did a, a lecture about this and I took offense at that, but I just don't see, I don't see how going backward is going to be of any benefit to anyone. And I agree. It's ironic that you brought up neurosurgery because I've started doing some medical malpractice cases just here and there. And, and both attorneys that are, that I've worked the most with have said to me separately, they're in totally different state saying, wow, I sure have a lot of cases of PA, neurosurgical PAs, you know, harming patients. And and they both have kind of said, oh, yeah, I, got, I mean, I got, you know, a dozen of those cases. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's why neurosurgeons go to school so long to do their job, right? right? Because minutes matter when you're talking about paralysis and a number of other neurosurgical emergencies. And those are getting missed. And what's so interesting to me is I think you're right. Once these cases make it to trial, that's where I think we end up with a little bit of more realistic outcomes, right? Because physicians have had this liability their entire lives. And I think it is really interesting that in a lot of the cases involving non-physicians, there's this pushback like, oh, no, I'm just a nurse practitioner or I'm a PA. I just started three months ago. You know, there's the McAtee case out of the Midwest and the PA was like, look, I'd only been in the ER one month. I mean, how can I know what heart failure is? And it's like, well, I mean, that's... Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> right. I mean, can you imagine if a physician tried to use that same yeah. defense? No, they'd be they'd they'd lose their homes, they'd lose their livelihood, right. they'd lose everything. That's when when I review contracts, that's what I, one of the things I do in my law practice. I'll always put in there if they're going if a physician's going to agree to supervise an NP or PA. I, I'll put in addendums that the, the NP or PA has to be properly insured. They have to be properly trained in the uh, specialty. Um, so. There's, there's none of this, I'm just getting out of school and I'm going to be, do on-the-job learning, um, risking patients' lives. So How is that I going? Are you getting a lot of pushback from corporations when you try to write those addendums? I do sometimes. And then I tell the clients, you know, you've got to make a decision if you're comfortable doing this or not. Either you, if you're comfortable with it and they won't make the changes, then, you know, you accept the liability, but at least you go in knowing what your uh, potential liability is when you sign the contract, as opposed to all of a sudden you know, getting named in a lawsuit a year from now or a year from when you sign the contract and and having no idea what you're liable for. And there's a lot, I, I've got a, a list of, of uh, cases where docs have gotten sued for, or they've gotten judgments against them for multiple millions of dollars just for signing off on an NPRPA's chart. So it's, it's not a risk-free venture. This is what I don't like about the supervision. And I, I've gone rounds and rounds with just different people, you know, that the supervision thing scares the bejesus out of me because I have enough problem, you know, like I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I have a problem, but I don't want to have a problem. Right. I really want to dot my I's and cross my T's. And I, I, sometimes it's amazing. The most little finding that you get back a week later ends up being something that matters. And if you don't know how to read labs, so many non-physicians, like they don't know how to read labs and what they're told in school, you'll learn about immunizations. I mean, really basic stuff, right? Oh, someone else will handle immunization. Someone else will interpret labs for you. And the issue for me is always like, that's not the way this works. You need to read x-rays, you need to interpret labs, at least in primary care. So I think to me, that's what I love about your position is I, I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for someone else's decision. That I can't live with that. 
And, and it's kind of interesting you say that because one of the uh, staffing companies um, advertises to hospitals that oh, you can hire a nurse practitioner, a PA, and they're one third the cost of a physician. And they can see up to 33% of emergency department cases. The problem is, is you don't know which 33%. I mean, it can there can be a very uh, innocuous finding. And I, I actually work with um, NPs and PAs in my emergency department um, part of the time. And I make sure I go and look at every patient. And I've caught a lot of little subtle things that if missed would have led to bad patient outcomes, very bad patient outcomes. So it's, it's a case that, yeah, they can, can, the NPs and PAs can see 33% of the cases independently, but figuring out which 33% is a little more difficult than it sounds. And I mean, one of the cases that I uh, that I think I have up on my blog actually is about a uh, an NP. You know, it was a PA that saw a guy with leg pain and he diagnosed him with a calf strain. He ended up having compartment syndrome, and there was a seven million dollar judgment for compartment syndrome. And the doc who signed off on the chart without seeing the patient ended up paying about two and a half million dollars, which is obviously higher than the malpractice limits that the doctor had with their malpractice insurance um, policy. So big deal. So Dr. Sullivan, speak to our audience that are listening right now, physicians, maybe young docs that just graduated, they're taking their first job. What advice, general advice, are you going to give them medical legally regarding supervision? You, you got to be very careful with it. We'll put it that way. I think it's a big risk to say, I'm just going to sign off on a bunch of patient charts after the fact without actually seeing the patients. That's a huge risk that I wouldn't take. Um, if you're going to work with NPs and PAs, make sure you go and look at the patients, actually lay eyes on the patients. That's a uh, that's another big thing. And I can't tell you that I do it every single patient with, uh, with the uh, NPs and PAs I work with, but usually it's somebody that the nurses will come into me and say, okay, here's what I see. The, the PA or NP will come to me and say, here's what I see. I'll look at the labs and everything and I'll discuss, here's, you know, what were your findings? And um, I'll get a very good idea of what's going on if I can't get in to see, if, see one of the, a patient if it's very busy. But uh, those should be the exception rather than the rule. And then again, make sure if you're working with NPs and PAs that they've got proper training and proper malpractice insurance. Um, that way it doesn't fall all on you if there's a bad outcome. Yeah, this is so important because I graduated residency. I got a job at a federally qualified health center to pay back med school. And from day one, I was told, here's your PA, here's your NP, you're responsible for them. No one trained me. No one talked to me about it. No one. I mean, it was I had sovereign immunity because of that setting. But, you know, still, uh, I'm, I just think it's so important that our newer new graduating physicians are more informed and aware of these issues going into it. Sovereign immunity isn't complete immunity. Just keep I, that, that in mind. That is true. That is very true. And I guess the other thing, you know, when Rand and I wrote our book, we, you know, of course we argued that we we don't support independent practice or we didn't feel that the evidence supported independent practice. We'll just say that. But ultimately, our argument was that patients do need to be informed and make their own best decision. And they're the ones that need to push back. And so by what you're doing, by writing these articles and informing the public, and then also by some PR campaigns, because I think patients get a lot of PR from nurse practitioners and PAs telling them they're just as good. And we as physicians, we have to give a little more information too about the difference in our training. And I think that's that's really important. Especially in specialty training. I, I think that is so important. Well, and rewrote the book for patients. You know, I, I've, I've, any of the interviews I've done, people always get a little confused. They think we wrote it for doctors. And I said, you know what? I've given up on the doctors. I've given up on the politicians. I've given up on everybody else. So what's left for me is I want patients informed. 
And that's it. You know, even if they don't agree with us, you know, our, our, our book was about the evidence. There's no evidence that uh, NPs and PAs practice the same. Um, all the studies obviously were supervised studies. So, I mean, we leave that where it is. But I found that I think once people know and they ask and they understand who they're seeing, no matter who they're seeing, at least if they understand who they're seeing, um, they can be a lot more, they can be a better advocate for themselves. So I think that's probably the most important piece. And that's what I love about your or your article is it sort of succinctly explains why I think, especially in these independent states, we just have to kind of move forward. And we have to sort of now, I think if they want to be the same, let's let them be the same and let's let them provide the same standard of care. And if they can't, then that's something they'll have to let fall out in the wash. Not so radical an idea then, huh? I guess. I mean, I, I don't think it's radical, but apparently somebody out there does. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I think I'm coming around to your line of thought. I really do. I, I do. I just start to think that maybe old in the long run, it'll end up saving more lives. Uh, I, I hate to see anybody harmed. Uh, and I know inevitably they will be, but there's no stopping this train until it, it's forced to stop. And maybe this is what it's going to take. I want to thank you so much, Dr. William Sullivan, for joining us. We're going to include your website, if that's okay. I know it sounds like you're taking new physician clients for contract review. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm always happy to try to help. I love getting questions. And I actually have a, a backlog of probably five or six questions that I, I have to research and answer just to give kind of a, a better like explanation. Um, but I'd love, if there's a questions, I'd love to try to answer. I just got to get the time to do it every once in a while. Yeah. You sound like you're a very busy man. You've got a lot on your plate. We appreciate what you're doing, especially your advocacy for patients. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to invite you back to some of talk about some of the other cool articles that you've written in the future. Thanks. I'd be happy to. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about our mission of advocating for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. You can join us at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.